no one wants to be responsible for their Pokemon cards that then haven't been kept in the right environment or you have a fire and they burn and they're gone, like being able to keep them offline and then not be responsible. That's a, yeah, an amazing concept. And I think the, the use cases of how blockchain can be used are really starting to come out now that the hype, the easy money has kind of gone. And it's now like, well, how do we use blockchain as a technology layer to actually solve real world problems? Welcome to the Sporting Crypto Podcast, where we talk to leaders in the sports and Web3 space. Happy New Year! Joining me on today's episode is Matt Lord, Director of Technology and Digital Systems at SailGP. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thank you for having me. What a great setup. I've seen it on many of your podcasts to date, so it's great to be here in person, see it. So um, been a great fan of your show and all the newsletters to date, so thank you for having me. No, my pleasure. We've had a great conversations off air over drinks, lunch, dinners, whatever it may be. And now we are bringing it to uh, a recording environment so we can bore everyone to death, right? We'll try not to. <laughs> uh, the first and only recording for season one in 2024. We've done all of them and you are the last episode that will go out. Episode 15. Wow. I'm honoured. Um, I saw Mark in the first one all the way through to here. So glad to be part of the journey. Brilliant. Why don't you begin by telling people more about what SailGP actually is, because many of our audience may not have heard of the sport itself. SailGP is, I guess, the most exciting racing on water. We're purely powered by nature. We have this season, we're season four, we have 10 teams in 13 iconic racing venues around the world in foiling F50 catamarans. So these are high tech and adrenaline fueled sports. So these catamarans can do 100 kilometers an hour. And we've got the world's best athletes competing in nation versus nation racing um, around the world. So it's a fun sport. It's near shore. So I think previously a lot of people see sailing as sort of white triangles and a blue background and people you know, don't know what's really going on. So we brought it near shore so you can see it from the shoreline and it's short races. So it's all in 12 minute races. So it's trying to bring sailing to a new audience and bring it to a modern audience as well. So built in a digital age. Yeah, relatively new. Many people may not have heard of it. Why don't you tell us what your role entails at CellGP? My role, so as Director of Technology and Digital Systems, is to kind of help look after our technology and digital ecosystem. I get to work with many of our great partners and internal stakeholders on how do we create brilliant technology and digital products that we can take to our fans and audience to bring about um, either better experiences, improved efficiency as a business, and help tell some of our amazing partners what technology capabilities they have and what businesses they can help achieve in the future. So I've been here two years and um, it's been a fantastic ride of being able to deploy some fantastic tech with some great partners. And speaking of you being there for two years, why don't you take us back and talk to us about your journey up until this point? What's your background? So when I kind of Left university, I really, really wanted to work in sport. And um, my whole sort of background as a kid was playing a lot of sport, being involved in sport. And I thought, right, how do I work my way into sport in some way? And I was really fortunate to get a job within the Lawn Tennis Association, which is the national governing body of tennis in this country. And to date, I've worked mostly within the national governing body. So I've worked with, with England Rugby or the RFU, as some people may know it, British Rowing, 
the Olympics and a sports software house. And I've always sort of been in that technologist type of role, sort of being that translator between business and tech, I guess. And I never forget my first job was at the LT, I was putting in results manually by hand. So I was putting pet beat mat and I'd literally key in these numbers one by one. And I kind of got involved in a project to help be part of a digital transformation project to automate some of that. Mm -hmm. So allow tournament organizers to collect results in an electronic way, submit them, and then we could upload them. And eventually that meant we could do online leaderboards and ratings and rankings online. So that was kind of my first exposure to how do we take a current business practice that was pen to paper through to an electronic one that provided a better experience. And throughout my career, I've helped implement sort of lots of those sorts of solutions all the way to today where it's more looking at AI and AR and VR and, and blockchain on how we can use those technologies to bring about business change or an improved sort of end user experiences. And on that note, where did your interest personally for the kind of Web3 landscape stem from? I guess it probably started in maybe 2011 with Bitcoin, but purely as a speculative investment. I kind of had heard about it and maybe probably at times considered buying it, but maybe at the time the user journey wasn't quite as easy for me to try and figure out how to go about and doing it. I do have friends that did, and I still hear from them today where they probably sold out for $1,000 and thought, great, I've, I've done really well here and hear that how much money they would have made if they'd have hung on to it to this date. So that was kind of, I guess, the start of me understanding the world, but purely from a speculative investment perspective as opposed to the chain itself. I think probably resurfaced in uh, a prominent way. And I think probably 80% of your people in the podcast have always mentioned Top Shots. So I'd say probably that sort of concept around trading cards, um, as a kid, always liked collecting Panini stickers or you know, Pokemon cards back then. And I think that was a moment where I realized, okay, there is something about this technology around being able to collect a digital asset and own it that might have a utility or just rarity that you then might want to trade in the same way that you would a Panini sticker or a valuable Pokemon card. So I think that brought it around, especially around the Board 8 Yacht Club. There's a lot of hype around that. And I think that was an interesting proposition. And I guess it really kind of hit home from uh, in 2021, I guess, in the real hype time where you'd walk down the street or you'd be on a train or a bus and you'd see everybody trying to buy some Bitcoin using some exchange app. And I think that's when I realized this has sort of entered mash consciousness. Everyone's sort of aware of what it is from an asset value perspective, but not really from a, a technology perspective. No one really was sort of scratching around about what a blockchain was and what it could be used and what its use case was. So I kind of was more aware of what it could do, but I guess most of it for me was around the speculative investment side of things. And on the technology note, you know, a lot of more traditional technologists hate blockchains and crypto assets. What made you more open-minded? I think it was seeing the concept of a blockchain as opposed to the tradable asset side of things or the speculative investment side of things, of being able to see how you can validate things on chain, how it can be immutable, and how that may have some real life use cases in the future. Oddly enough, I was just reading on the train on the way in today around this unfortunate, horrible situation around the post office and these mm -hmm. post office submasters, and just reading today that 
apparently the, the software was set up where you could go through a back door and change things without people and, and submasters knowing that this was happening, whether it was on a, a blockchain, whether it was private or public, and those records couldn't be changed because they were immutable, people would have been able to actually see what was happening. But because people had a backdoor to this technology and were able to change the records, people got away with stuff that they shouldn't have done for a long time. So and these submasters weren't making these records, people were changing it in the back end. So maybe a blockchain technology has a use case around making sure that records are immutable, that people can't change them. Where else do you see the value in blockchain technology more broadly? You're probably the most tech-minded person we've had on the show, which is why I'm kind of digging into that. Um, I think for us also, I think it'd be really interesting in performance data, potentially. So CLGP is a sport. We're completely open with our, with our data. Each team can see each other's data. So when it comes to racing if one team is doing better than another team, the coaches can have a look at, in real time, look at why that may be happening, look at the data, understand what settings they've put in. And I think could be an interesting angle, especially around private and public blockchains. Mm. And could some of that data be held on a private chain that you might want to share on a public chain at some point? Or are there areas where potentially, from an education perspective, at the moment, if I wanted to kind of get my university records, my school records, I don't really even know how I'd do it. I'd probably contact the schools and universities and say, what are my certificates? Is there a world where some of that information could be stored in a private blockchain, but those that you want to share publicly could be stored in a public chain? People are talking a lot about um, zero-knowledge proof technology as well, which could come to the fore in a big way over the next two or three years, where you might only need to prove that you have a specific qualification or record like you were just talking about, but not actually have to show the data. And the person that wants to see or prove that just has a yes or no proof rather than the exact date. I always like the analogy of, well, actually, to get into a bar where you have to be over 18 or over 21 in, in America, you don't have to prove that you're 27 or 40. You just have to prove that you're over 21 or over 18. And so there is going to be, I think, a really interesting twist, or twist is the wrong word, but maybe an emergence and a and an evolution into how some of that data is used when you're trying to prove something, right? Yeah, and I think the world of... COVID and what happened during that time, but there was a point in time where to get into a restaurant or go on a plane, you had to prove that you'd had your COVID vaccines. Now, could that have been that in that exact example, you just have something that says yes or no, that someone has or hasn't had that now? There's obviously lots of social things you'd have to discuss and not to say that that technology is right or wrong in that use case. I think one area would also be interesting is around ESG and around impact legal supply chains. So when organisations want to prove or show what the ESG scores are. It could be that a lot of information stored on a private blockchain, but then on a public one, it can have the publicly available information around why an organization's ESG score is X or Y. We have a product called the Impact League where teams race and compete to be top of a second podium, which is around sustainability and purpose. And it could be an area where you would score teams on a private blockchain so it can be audited by somebody but maybe you don't want all that information to be publicly available but the information that you do want publicly available could be shared in a public chain and um, allow people to view the data there. And then more specifically for CellGP, to date how is blockchain impacting the day-to-day? 
I think to the day to day. So we, as an organisation, are a tech company in many ways. It's one of our core pillars alongside purpose and the sport. And we're always looking at emerging technologies, whether it's AR, VR, as I alluded to earlier. And the world of blockchain was one that was of great interest to us and we wanted it. And we had a great opportunity to partner with Nier and actually work with Nier as a great partner. And we decided to explore this world with, I guess, and to take you back to sort of the beginning of our partnership was looking at what do we do with just understanding from an organisation's perspective and also myself and the team, what is this technology? How could we use it? So we started in a simple way around digital collectibles and NFTs. So we created some, I think it was around Earth Day, we launched some posters that we turned into digital assets. And we also had some city, some of the iconic venues we went to, we had some city landscapes made that were turned into NFTs that were all around, more around the rarity of those assets. And then we had some iconic photography that were turned into assets. And that then evolved into, I think, a Chicago event where we had a in real life experience of an art gallery where people who come in, see the art, purchase an NFT, get a digital print of it as well. And they would then enter into opportunities to get discount off tickets or merchandise. And I think ultimately there was a prize to get tickets to go to one of our more hospitality areas. And after that, we learned a lot. We really did around some of the challenges around the technology at the time and some of the poor user experiences that some people had. It took some people a long time to understand what the technology was, but the concept of a, a seed phrase and the whole custodial versus non-custodial wallets was challenging. I think a lot of the world still don't use two-factor authentication, right? You and I probably do, and it's kind of second nature, but some people just don't want to do it because it's an extra step to secure their account and don't do it. So kind of talking about seed phrases and doing that is just a step too far in some ways. So we sat down and thought, what would be next? What would we want to do? And we basically looked at our partnerships, and we've got a fantastic partner in Oracle and Nia. And we sat down and thought, how can we bring these two worlds together and create maybe a 2.5 product where the user experience might be more Web 2 of a journey, but has a nice Web 3 twist to it. What we ended up doing was building a, a fan engagement product, and it's a fan loyalty program called The Doc, which is quite apt. I think the last few of your podcasts, you've talked quite a lot about fan engagement and stuff like that. So it's kind of been at the heart of that program was to have a Web3 twist to it. It's a loyalty-free, traditional, you accumulate points in exchange for doing activities and those points can be redeemed for experiences or other rewards. And that was built with Oracle's CrowdTwist product, which is a traditional Web2 product. It's used by many organizations around the world. And we created a middleware layer between Oracle's CrowdTwist platform and the Near protocol to create a season battle pass. So it's a very similar to a gaming battle pass, I think maybe some people are familiar with, where people can create a digital collectible and in exchange for that, they unlock and join the season pass where they unlock additional rewards through that. And as they tear up through the um, loyalty program, they unlock additional digital collectibles that are all really coolly designed elements of an F50 or the kit that the athletes wear and they all unlock new prizes. So it's been a real great learning experience to, I think around half our fan base has kind of joined the fan loyalty program and I think maybe half of those have also joined the digital collectible side of things. So it's been a um, great journey to understand what and how they interact with that technology and that's kind of where we are now is 
well, what next? We've kind of had six months to kind of listen, learn and understand. And we're now looking at what do we do next as kind of phase two post MVP with Oracle and Near to, to bring new experiences to people. Firstly, I mean, how successful has that kind of MVP product been in terms of uh, feedback, number of users, people that are interacting with the kind of Web 2 converting to the Web 3 side, etc.? Yeah, I'd say about, I think, 50% of our base are converting across to actually looking at the technology. The feedback has been that we need to probably improve and streamline the Web 3 element of it in it's pretty simple at the moment, but can we make it easier? Mm. So do we move down to potentially a route of creating implicit accounts where it's more in the background? I think for me, it's, I think the technology itself is something that can it sit a bit more behind the curtain and people don't really see the technologies in the similar way that maybe you and I may have a great experience online currently, whether it's buying a product or buying a service, but we don't really think about the technology that sits behind it. We don't really worry whether it's an Oracle server or an AWS server or an Azure server. It's just something that happens. And is it that Web3 is supposed to have been talked about and maybe telling people it's Web3 and we're doing this and it's blockchain? Is it something that just happens? You just have a great experience. Do people care? They just want a good user experience. And if it happens to be on a blockchain, great. Maybe we do educate people. And that's obviously important that we do. But... I think just great user experiences is probably key and the technology will just follow that. And I think that's maybe where we need to look at, you know, the word NFT, even most people move to digital collectibles because NFT kind of had a a bad name and people don't naturally have a warm feeling towards it. So is it something that as an industry, as a a sector, we need to look at of how do we make it a bit more behind the curtain for mass consumers to adopt and engage with? Just moving aside from the NFT loyalty system slightly, I mean, you folks made a lot of headlines when you changed your league rules to incorporate a DAO, which was really interesting. The push from marketing perspective was really well done, really great video and really interesting concept. I suppose that team is still funding now and and trying to get on its own two feet, but you being such a young league we're able to kind of move nimbly to, to take that opportunity. Yeah, so as a league and I guess as an organisation, we own the league, we own a number of the teams, some are slowly being sold off, but we also host all the events ourselves and we own all the F50s as well. So we kind of own a lot of the estate. So it allowed us to actually not have to jump through too many hoops to actually change things. And that's across all elements of CLGP. But this area in particular is we changed our participation agreement to explicitly allow if a DAO were to form, that that DAO could participate and be part of our league and own a team and, and run a team. And yes, an organisation is currently out there, you know, raising in an SEC compliant way to try and bring a DAO to sell GP. Obviously, there are only a few success stories, I guess, within sport entertainment, whatever you want to call this category, where decentralised groups have had any um, success, as I mentioned. You know, we've had LinksDAO and Krauthaus on the podcast. There's a, a few other interesting projects that are quite newer, in, including yours. Where do you think the real potential is for that kind of word, DAO, to kind of impact this world? I mean, there are a lot of people who think that there should be entities where fans are allowed to say and do or have a say in every single decision. 
there are some where I think like Linksdale had a really good quote on the show when they said we've only actually had 15 votes the whole time, which I think is is quite interesting as a spectrum because there are some that have tried to do something where, you know, the fans pick the play in an American football game and then all the way across in terms of where fans or contributors are voting on maybe the more important looking at it from 300 feet type of decisions. So where do you think the opportunities are for something like this? I think just generally with DAOs, I think it's an amazing opportunity for fans to show their ultimate fandom, right? Being owning part of something that you love is amazing, right? As you know, I support Aston Villa or Arsenal. Like we're unlikely to ever be able to own the teams of our choice, right? It's just not going to happen and not many people ever get that opportunity. But via a DAO, if you have the ability to have a say in something that you feel passionate and that you love and be part of that community and whether that's offering financial support or even, I think via Krauss, you know, you've got skills that you might be able to bring to that wider collective that can help that thing that you love grow and be better, I think is fascinating because there are many things that I think people have time and energy for and being able to pour that into something such as a DAO where you can own something you love, I think is really powerful and I think is ultimate fandom. But I appreciate there are many challenges with doing these things and bringing them to life. And I think the Lynx DAO one is amazing. Like how many people could go out and buy and own a golf course? Not many, right? So the fact that you can be part of that collective, I think is it's really cool. Yeah, and I think there are already like Web2 examples of co-ops and is it the Green Bay Packers that are owned by by fans? And, you know, you've got the Barcelona Socios and Bayern Munich have like a huge fan decision-making thing that have like stopped them being sponsored by certain companies and so on and so forth. So there are already existing models that I think have been successful, relatively successful in sport. And I don't see why adding a layer of technology to something that has some success in the existing world can't be good and can't be good for fans. And I think the way it's been dressed up by a lot of projects so far hasn't been great and they've maybe missed the point and they've tried to go too hard on the crypto element whereas like the blockchain side of things is actually just trying to streamline some models that we've already seen in the real world. Agreed and I think that's I guess to my point earlier where the technology is just an enabler it doesn't matter that it's blockchain that's great and that enables things to potentially be more efficient but pushing it down a web3 crypto this is why we're doing it maybe isn't always the point as you say there are many successful examples of doing it but this is just another way of doing it it's not to potentially say that one is right or wrong it's just using different technology to solve a use case in the real world and i'm sure there are pros and cons about using it on a blockchain or and not but they're all trying to get to a same point and i think again as i alluded to earlier the more i think the concept of blockchain and web3 can be behind the curtain is something that's just a technology layer that works, the better, because then it takes some of the heat around out of it. Like, should or shouldn't it be on a blockchain? It doesn't matter. It's technology that just works. It's an infrastructure layer. Brilliant. We saw the kind of peak of this that specific hype cycle with um, the Constitution DAO, where a load of random people on the internet tried to buy one of the nine available copies of the Constitution in America. And a lot of people really poo-pooed that because they didn't end up winning the bid because obviously their funds were 
available to see for everyone on a public blockchain. And uh, the person who won it just saw how much they had in the treasury and just upped it by a million, which is quite funny as a story. But I think not that many people recognized the amazing journey that that collective had gone on to get to the point where they were already ready to bid for it. The raising of the capital, the issuing of the tokens, the refund after they didn't <laughs> they didn't win the bid, the organization to get to that point in the first place. It showed that, you know, DAOs can have some big advantages over offline or off-chain groups, whether it's uh, fundraising, whether it's public viewing of where those funds are going, whether it's the organization and autonomy. I think the autonomous part is a little bit more rough around the edges. But I think there is still something here to be explored for sure. And maybe they aren't called DAOs in 10 years, right? It's just a new operating model for humans on the internet. Yeah. And similar, I guess, to NFTs and digital collectibles, maybe the, the terminology NFT just disappears into the background. It's what it is, but it might not be what they're called. And lastly, before we move on to part two, I mean, you talked a little bit about the public and private chains that you've had some experience with, and, and you kind of talked about whether or not they could be advantageous for a variety of use cases in the real world. What are the kind of pros and cons of both public and private chains as they sit right now? And where could there be real use cases for you in the future? Obviously, some of the advantage of a private blockchain is that I guess it's private. So there may be information that you want to store that you don't want the mass public to be able to see on, on a ledger. However, it is immutable still. So when it comes to an audit perspective, you've got those advantages of having on a private chain. Whereas a public chain has the benefits of being private. Again, it's immutable. And for me, around performance data, there will be elements of that where maybe all performance data is held on chain. But And it could be even say athlete health data could be held on a private chain. But you don't want all athlete help on a public chain. So maybe the heart rate of an athlete that they were comfortable with sharing could be shared on public chain that then may be used for analysis or, you know, from a broadcast perspective. I think ESG scoring will be interesting. And I said education, I think there's some interesting use cases around that side of things. So it's an area that we're looking at and exploring. Um, Oracle have their own private blockchain on Hyperledger. So we're looking at, you know, potentially where is there a bridge between that and potentially the near ecosystem? Well, before we move on to part two, uh, where we look at the future a little bit more, I need to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by the HBAR Foundation. The most beloved sports brands understand that what fans want is simple, a reason to be passionate. The HBAR Foundation enables brands and fans to share their passion on-chain using the Hedera network, the most used sustainable enterprise-grade DLT for the decentralized economy. Visit linkedin.com slash company slash HBAR Foundation to learn more and get the latest HBAR Foundation and Hedera Network news. Welcome back to part two and uh, we'll get straight back into it, Matt, if that's all right with yeah, you. Yeah, let's do it. Where do you think this technology has been used badly so far in sport? Where's it been badly? I think for me, as a rather than calling out things that maybe I think I've had badly, I think for me, some organisation maybe have rushed into some of these partnerships maybe too quickly, uh, maybe seen the dollar signs and kind of partnered with it because there was this money on the table and they've grabbed it. And I think maybe not always thinking through the user journey. What does the user, what's the value exchange that this technology may bring to somebody? 
and I think you've talked about it recently, I think maybe one of your predictions for this year is how some organisations might move from one chain to another. And I think that's an interesting area where some have built some great products on one chain. But if that partnerships were to no longer continue and you partner with somebody else, and maybe similar to the FIFA example that you also put talked about in your latest newsletter, how do you move assets from one chain to another? You know, I've been, as I said, I've just been a part of a few database movers from one database to another, whether it's, you know, AWS to Oracle or to an Azure platform. That's challenging and it's difficult and it's, it takes a lot of time and effort. How do you do that in a Web3 world is something that I don't think maybe some organizations have thought enough about. They've kind of put all their eggs in one basket and now what do we do when they move or... Cross that bridge when we get there. Yeah, that kind of situation. And I think that's something that I think maybe some organizations haven't thought through enough because... I guess the technology is new and, it, and we're all trying to learn and feel our way through it. And therefore, I can kind of see interoperability is going to be key. It might not mean that you need to move from one chain to another because the chains can all speak to each other and there is a bridge from chain to chain. And I think that's a real thing that the layer ones kind of need to figure out is how do we move or connect different infrastructure layers together to enable some better user experiences. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, with database migration on the back end, that can be really, really tricky for a plethora of reasons, right? In the more kind of crypto native world, we have seen projects migrate chains in a not seamless way, but probably a lot easier than it would be for a database migration, right? You look at the ledger, you see who has what asset, and you just say, okay, take a snapshot of that at a specific time, issue all those assets again with the same metadata on another chain, and let those people claim them with an existing wallet that they have. And you just have to ensure that they prove you know, it could be a two-step thing. You prove you have it on this chain and you get issued it on the next one. I think SoRare even did that when they migrated to Starknet, who are like a layer two on Ethereum. They had to remint all the assets. There's been a few projects that have gone from Solana to Ethereum and so on and so forth. I do think it will become easier. And I think it probably is easier from a Web3 perspective, generally speaking, than Web2 um, in terms of database migration. But I think if you're a brand and you still have your IP on an immutable chain, that's where I think there is the bigger difficulties, right? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think also the world moves quite fast as well, especially in this world, like it's two or three years and it's, it's a lifetime, right? And sometimes maybe building on Web3 can take a bit longer and it's a bit, bit harder. And therefore, by the time you start a project to finishing it, the industry, the technology's moved on, which has meant that some projects have rolled out that the world's moved on by the time that that's hit end user market. So I think that's another area where brands maybe have not been agile enough to react to the industry changing and therefore the products and services that they offer in consumers haven't always matched expectations. And where do you think the industry can learn from in these last three or four years where we've seen the world of sport and, and blockchain really collide? I think for me, it's going to be around the interoperability play. I think it'll be really key. There's some great opportunities out there where, you know, can we, as we built a fan loyalty proposition that has on-chain elements, but can we partner with another brand or organization and join our fan loyalty propositions together and bring greater experiences by allowing people to move either from one chain to another. And I think there's a really exciting opportunity around that. I think that's kind of where it sits for me at the moment. 
I think as well, because at the moment you own a lot of the real estate as sale GP and you said a lot of that might be sold off and you might have this F1 situation where there is a, a league and all the teams are owned by different entities. The ability for those entities eventually, if they're owned by groups who are looking to commercialize themselves, to tap into some of that network in a much more seamless way could be really, really fascinating, right? Yeah, so uh, some of our teams are slowly being sold off. So at the start of CellGP, CellGP owned all the teams and um, slowly different organizations have either brought new teams to the league and are independently owned or CellGP have sold um, a team to a third party. So the most recent one has been the sale of the US team to private individuals. So that's recently happened. And I think that's, yeah, it could be a great example of how if all the teams were sold and we were then the league and we hosted all these amazing venues for these amazing teams to race in, like how can we have centralized technology that can allow and support these teams to operate? Or if those teams were to go on and bring on board their own technologies and infrastructure, how can we harness those together to create amazing products and services and experiences for fans, whether they're fans of the league or fans of the team? Yeah, because for most sports leagues, there's been a siloed approach, right? Teams will have their own loyalty program, blockchain partner, et cetera, et cetera, for obvious reasons, right? And then the leagues will have their own sponsors and partners and products and platforms. And there isn't that much connectivity. I think one of the good examples actually is probably the Premier League where the league is kind of governed by the teams. So it's slightly different. Whereas there are other organizations where there is just less of that connectivity and, and there is more friction between team and league or team or nation and federation. Yes, I think that's where CLGP is at as an intersection because you know, we are now having more third-party teams that will want to make decisions in their own right and commercialise in their own way and bring on their own partners. But as an organisation that was, sort of, I guess, born in the digital age, we've got an opportunity to try and make that as seamless as possible. Mm-hmm. And if they are going to bring on different partners or solutions, how do we make sure that we can connect them in a seamless way or offer central services that the teams will use as opposed to bringing on their own? And it'd be interesting to see how technology or blockchain can help support make that journey smoother. And aside from, you know, the fan engagement loyalty side of things, do you see any other really big opportunities for sports brands, generally speaking, outside of GP, where blockchain can help? I think some of it will be really interesting in the ESG space. I do think that more and more of the world is moving to the sustainability angle of themselves. And we know that lots of organisations are really interested in what we've done with the Impact League. And I think as the world moves in that way, how do you score people's ESG scoring, whether it's from a supply chain perspective, from a travel perspective, I think using blockchain technology to actually be able to track a supply chain of where your manufacturing of sports apparel comes from or equipment, I think will be an interesting use case for the Web3 technology. And I think sports brands themselves, I think will be interesting to see how they utilize it from an ESG perspective. One of the things that I think will have a big impact on exactly what you just said is this emerging trend we're seeing with real world assets on chain. A really good example, Courtyard, many will have seen, they put loads of Pokemon cards on chain and people will say, well, that's dumb. Right. But actually, who wants to have collectible trading cards like just stowed in their basement where they're responsible for how fallible they are and whether or not they actually get 
burnt, destroyed, lost, whatever it may be, or even take on the burden of using a third party to send it to someone or sell it to someone. And I think if you imagine these things are on chain, the transactions are done via smart contracts, so there is less third party risk. And if that is sent from one person to another, it's not done from pet to mat, it's done from warehouse storage to mat directly. So there is a big emerging trend there happening. A lot of excitement at the back end of 23, and there's even more excitement in 24 and beyond, whereby there is going to be a lot of, I think, liquidity unlocked by storage off-chain, commerce on-chain. And I do wonder the kind of supply chain side of things that you just mentioned and the ESG unlocks that could happen. There is going to be a collision of those two, I think, which will be very interesting as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. I hadn't seen that. And that is a really interesting concept. And yeah, no one wants to be responsible for their Pokemon cards that then haven't been kept in the right environment or you have a fire and they burn and they're gone, like being able to keep them offline and then not be responsible. That's a, yeah, an amazing concept. And I think the, the use cases of how blockchain can be used are really starting to come out now that the hype, the easy money has kind of gone. And it's now like, well, how do we use blockchain? as a technology layer to actually solve real world problems. Why is it better? Exactly. The why is the question that I kind of challenge our team a lot is why do we do this? Why is it like that? And some of it is if you forget it's Web3 and it's just a technology layer, it kind of makes some of that conversation a bit easier because mm-hmm. it's, it's just technology that enables a use case to happen. Well, last question from me. What do you think crypto skeptics are right about that this space needs to get better at? For me, it's around legislation, I think, is to bring consumer confidence back to the consumer market and to the everyday person that maybe hasn't really understood what Web3 is. I think you need legislation to bring confidence back to the market. I think what happened around FTX and other examples has kind of really sort of damaged the brand of Web3. And I think bringing consumer confidence back via legislation. It will be key. You, you mentioned the Bitcoin ETF that's happened recently to me outside of this podcast. And I think that's a, an interesting example to see how that starts to change consumer behavior and bring maybe bring confidence back to cryptocurrencies. And if that market comes back and people are confident around that, then the underlying technology of blockchain will be maybe more readily accepted into everyday life. Yeah, and have more legitimacy, funding, whatever else it needs to thrive and get to where it needs to. What do you think some of the skeptics are wrong about? That Web3 will disappear and it will go, and the concept of blockchain and will disappear and not come back, like this technology is here to stay. I'm not sure exactly where it'll end up, but the technology is here, and I think some skeptics are kind of think it's been a money-making scheme or a maybe a Ponzi scheme just to generate cash and wealth for people. But I think for me... There are so many use cases for blockchain and we're just at the start of that journey. We think how far some of the other technologies that are now coming to the fore, such as maybe VR, the Apple Vision Pro is about to be released next month. Well, VR has been around for years, but it's now coming to a point where it's a mass consumer product that people accept use and it's not like a gimmick in the corner. And the concept of blockchain and becoming a mass market product, we're just at the start. It's a great example on the VR front. I mean, AR as well, Snapchat filters and Pokemon Go, how long that's been around. AI as well, people think of it as like an overnight success, but machine learning and AI has been around for decades. Exactly. And I think what will be interesting to see is where those worlds all start to collide, where AR, VR, ML, 
blockchain technology eventually they will coalesce as well in some way and i think that will be a really exciting opportunity to see where that world moves to so yeah i, I used to think it, it was potentially something that is used to hype either or both technologies but the more i think of it and especially on the ai and machine learning front it's by definition quite an inflationary technology like it will create an abundance of things whether that's like content sites marketing whatever it may be like anything you can imagine that can be done digitally or you see on the internet already the the number of those things is going to increase and so i think it's quite interesting that you have another technology here in blockchain or crypto which is more deflationary in nature and more non-fungible in nature or at least certifiably real or made by a specific author or creator or at least have the ability to give those people to do that i think there is going to be some sort of meshing worlds of those worlds as well and i think you know when people talk about vr and ar and apple vision pro is is probably going to be quite groundbreaking when it enters the kind of mass consciousness over the next decade but i do think there will be questions around like in the same way that we've done with internet which is so many people are spending time in a digital realm and actually there is no power to the consumer there is no data privacy and it's owned and run and operated basically by three or four big tech companies and that's wrong right but that's kind of okay right now because the internet in a consumer sense has only been around for what 35 years or whatever and so 30 years from now it might seem natural that we had an evolution from kind of a internet feudalism to something a little bit more democratic right the other bit i'm really interested in is if people apple vision pro and you've got ar and vr well there will be digital assets that people will have so you've got some in the vr world some cool sneakers that i really like well maybe i'll buy them off you but why would apple want those to be digital assets apple might not do but the consumers may do it will be interesting to see that balance of power between what the big tech companies want and then what the mass consumer wants. And I think that's where maybe the two worlds do collide. And regulation might play a part, right? Because um, I forgot what the announcement was, but Apple has to start allowing third-party app stores in 24. So there is clearly a fight in the background to stop all the power, money, and influence centralizing into very few companies, which is basically what we have right now. How that kind of pans out is going to be very interesting when Apple have more cash on deck than most nations. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we're in a in for a very, very interesting next kind of 10 years, broadly speaking, with those technologies and, and how they intersect. Yeah, and I think blockchain will be part of it. For sure. Uh, we'll end on that positive and enlightening note. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everyone. Uh, Matt, where can people find out more about you? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. It's probably the best place to find me. Brilliant. Uh, and if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Sporting Crypto newsletter. That's sportingcrypto.substack.com. Keeping you up to date with all things sports and Web3 every Monday. You can find me at Pet Barisha on Twitter or on LinkedIn. And just remember that none of what we have said during this show is financial or business advice. And this content is for informational purposes only. Web3 is underpinned by crypto and crypto is volatile, meaning you can lose money if you are buying these assets personally or as a business. Where we were recording right now in the UK, the majority of crypto asset companies are unregulated. Thanks once more for watching or listening, however you consume this content, and we'll have more Sporting Crypto podcasts for you soon.